If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. The pleasure of working with the students and seeing their excitement. They'll spend a few hours to draw or paint or sculpt in VR. And we actually learned after the first few sessions, we had to remember to tell everyone to take a break. Multiple award-winning AR VR expert, Alan Price, gets to see and share that excitement on a regular basis. Alan is the director of the Center for Immersive Media at University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Alan's background is in cinematography and animation, and his current work includes creating networked virtual environments and real-time animation for applications which include art experiences, performances, and games. Among the honors he's garnered in his career are an International Muse Award for his use of technology in museum exhibits. Alan's current projects include both the Museum Accessibility Project for the Visually Impaired and a virtual reality collaboration with Jefferson University with the goal of reducing physician burnout. Alan, before we get to talking about the Center for Immersive Media and some extremely exciting programs in which you're involved, how did filmmaking and animation first capture your imagination to the point that you made it your life's work? Oh, that's a great question and a lot of memories. I was interested in animation from a very early age. I often remember discovering my father's regular eight millimeter camera, you know, for making home movies, and that it had a single frame exposure button on it and taking one frame at a time and and just, you know, working in the house you know, probably when I was 12 years old and, and making stop motion animations and drawn animations and just always made it, you know, the thing I was most interested in and filmmaking and then going uh, eventually, you know, going into undergraduate school and learning that I needed to relearn everything all over again and just really opening up my eyes and experience to, you know, history of film and cinema. And then as that progressed with that interest in animation, I was at University of South Florida then. And, and, you know, they put in when I was there, they put in their first computer lab, started working with the computer to generate imagery and combining that with filmmaking process. And so it's just grown ever since then, you know, as that interest developed in real time animation, as computers had that ability to render in real time and then be able to start incorporating interactivity. And that just sort of set me on the trajectory ever since. What do you remember best about your first experience with that digital computer and filmmaking digitally? One of my strongest memories was in my, I guess it was near the start of my graduate studies and still in working with the computer, the the software that that I had available to me at that time for modeling objects and defining motions, you had to enter everything text-based. And so I would draw on graph paper the models I wanted to make and then figure out the coordinates for each point that defines the mesh of the object 
And I would spend hours and hours and spend all night in that computer lab that was relatively new at the department. And then I remember one morning walking out of that lab and it was dawn and the sun was coming up and the sun coming through a tree. I was up on the second floor and just the tree filling my my view. And I immediately thought about what it would take to define every little point, you know, and, and write it down, you know, X, Y, Z coordinate for every little point. And my brain just kind of was completely overwhelmed at the complexity of everything around us when we, you know, make this attempt to redefine or construct those things in, in virtual environments. So, yeah, just a real respect for that process and and the world around us. Sounds almost like a sense of awe with seeing that sun come through the tree and everything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did VR come into the mix for you and XR? How did you first experience immersive? Immersive? Again, with the advent of that capacity for real-time rendering and multi-channel screens, I started seeing what was going on at other institutions, the development of the CAVE, the CAVE Automatic Virtual Environment, which predates the availability of things like head mount displays by decades in terms of accessibility or or the practicality of being able to build one. And those were basically rooms, typically like a 10-foot square room that you would build with rear projection on each wall and and literally you know, stand inside of that space and be surrounded by the imagery. And at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County was one of the first institutions I was working at. You know, we built our own homebrew cave. And, and I, I, you know, that was the onset of, you know, the working with immersive media was sort of asking questions, can we build this? Can we do this? And yeah, again, it's just grown ever since then. And with the increasing availability of just of consumer level kind of technologies that you can acquire now, you know, at that time it was SGI computers, very expensive technology. And then as, you know, personal computers, largely driven by the gaming industry to make graphics cards that were more powerful and less expensive and just being able to start building installations of that kind. And I think what fascinated me and that I continued to keep on working with those kinds of displays and installations was really of observing the kind of impact on the audience experience where a large immersive installation with a surrounding projection and perhaps wearing 3D stereo glasses and you know, there might be a group of people in there that don't know each other, they're experiencing this for the first time. But I sensed that there was something about those kinds of environments that you can design that just brings out a, there's something that triggers like an emotional reaction where people just open up. And in those cases, those observations at those early times was seeing people just starting to have conversations with each other talking about what they're seeing, telling stories that it reminds them of. And I think that's really something that has stuck ever since then. Even with VR now, you hear a lot about studies and applications for for VR 
in its capacity for evoking empathy and for people to, you know, be able to really experience things in a visceral way that opens up or breaks down barriers. And so you see a lot of, you know, important applications now on like trauma recovery and, and phobia therapies and, and, you know, and really serious applications like pain management and distraction for kids to adults. So really interesting applications that leverage that kind of sort of innate effect that these immersive digital experiences can bring about. It's absolutely mind-blowing to me when you talk about the immersive applications such as the medical ones, such as where you're training doctors, for example, in an emergency room, which I understand you have done a program. That's right. I've worked on projects that are specifically for training. And there's one major project I've been working on with a group from the Ohio Wexner Medical Center at Ohio State. When I was there, that project launched, I continue to contribute to that, but that we are developing a VR simulation that trains people who are going, you know, in emergency medicine to be first responders. Our simulation actually recreates a a mass casualty scenario in which first responders, you know, the goal is save as many lives as quickly as possible. And it's been wonderful to see the responses in the groups that are wanting to adopt our system and use it for training and and to you know imagine the contribution to to that field you know they're heroes and and the other project that we worked on at the sim at uarts and in collaboration with jefferson university hospital was to look at the impact of the working environment on physicians in the emergency department environment. Apparently, there's a history of the kind of the kind of chaos as you might imagine in the 24/7 hours and and the, the demands that happen in the emergency department environment, that our study was using virtual reality as a means to explore that kind of influence and impact on physicians and and all of the staff working in those environments on what unfortunately too often turns out to be referred to as burnout physician burnout but it's you know a career ending issue in that field where people will just feel like as hard as they're working that, you know, are they making a difference? Are they able to work as efficiently as and effectively as they can? And so our study was the effect of the of the built environment on the impact on physician burnout. And we did a simulation that recreated the full emergency department at Jefferson Hospital. And the physicians and nurses, interns and staff, we had a large selection of participants who came in and wore VR. We joked about it a little bit because here they were spending all their time in that emergency department. And we invited them to come over and have a VR experience, you know, which you often equate with imaginary or fantastic kinds of experiences. But we wound up putting them right back into the emergency department. 
because we created a very high definition in you know using 360 photography and modeling to recreate the space accurately but what the result is is then when they step into that virtual space that they're sort of also stepping out of time and space and they're able to look around and contemplate how the space has an impact on what they do and it was very interesting to you know hear hear them responding as they're in the VR to start telling stories and recollecting memories right so it wasn't about looking at our virtual simulation and saying hey that looks just like you know the real space or that door is 2 feet to the right but it was rather i re- that door there's always people coming through that door and it's always a traffic problem and talking about sounds and the air quality and and just all of those elements that the recollection really starts to pour out when they're in that virtual space and experiencing it what feedback did you get from them i'm getting the impression it was very soul renewing for all of them but what did they say about their experience we did have as part of the you know the exit survey so to speak that if their thinking changed prior to going into the vr experience and then coming out and did it you know make them more aware of the physical space that they're in and make them you know cause them to become more observant about maybe things you know that they deal with on a day-to-day basis but had never really come to the forefront and the overwhelming response to that was yes that it did have that effect that was the exciting part for me but you know and much more depth to that survey in terms of again collecting all that information from the entire study group in terms of lighting in the space of sound control you know talking about how they're monitoring systems just like just like any of our different fields you know a lot of things are still technologies that are you know from decades ago with like intercom systems and things like that and so finding just little places everywhere for improvement in the infrastructure and technology of a space like that even examples like as they're walking around through the virtual space and you know in a hospital area there's storage rooms you know with pharmaceuticals or different kinds of supplies and they all have security combination locks and so they're commenting about you know every door has a different combination and you know so you arrive at these simple things but they add up where you're you can start proposing you know as simple as that one a system where you know the combinations are maybe connected to a network system so that they're managed more centrally and i think that's what a lot of what came out of that of like centralizing management of all those kind of routine tasks that they have to deal with sounds like a fascinating study and i'm i'm also yeah. thinking the aspect of community when somebody deals with a lot of stress one of the first things they think is i wish i could talk to somebody about this it sounds like that's exactly what your study did yes would you share a story with me i understand that you were instrumental in creating the center for immersive media how did that come about and what was that like for you i have been Working previously at a number of centers, I've always been a professor in visual arts in one way or another, or design. 
at Ohio State. I was there for about 13 years as a split appointment faculty between the Department of Design and ACAD, Advanced Computing Center for Arts and Design. And always through through my career at different institutions, I've participated in the process of designing and building research labs that incorporate media technology. And years ago, I had the you know great opportunity of working with David Yeager in other capacity back in Maryland. And he has moved from one institution to another. He was out at UC Santa Cruz, I understand, for a while. And, and when he came to University of the Arts as president, I believe it was his initial vision to begin a research center there in the area of immersive media. And I'm quite happy that he reached out and contacted me to see if I was interested in starting a new center. And I thought that sounded like a fantastic opportunity to be able to build one from the ground up and be the founding director of such a center. And that's where I found myself and came to UArts in 2019, maybe about six months before the renovation. We're very involved in the design and construction of the space and then getting to know the faculty and the creative community and looking at best ways that such a center can integrate with that academic community. And we were, I think we were about three or four months in after the opening and then COVID came. But we're back and running strong, and it's been really exciting to see how quickly it's come back. Because one of the things that I've reflected on when we closed down for COVID was, you know, I started to second guess, started to question myself about this, the design of this extensive, you know, physical facilities for development with immersive media when maybe another perspective, you know, with virtual reality. And as we all sort of migrated to Zoom and and remote working and collaboration that, well, maybe the focus should have been on that in the first place, or maybe we equate, you know, virtual reality with that kind of remote capacity or, you know, working in whether we call it the metaverse now or cyberspace, but but on coming back, I think I was really reaffirmed. And actually, as I mentioned earlier on about that collective experience, about immersive media applied to the physical spaces of you know, installations and large projections where multiple people are experiencing simultaneously and that, that proximity and that collaborative and opening up of communication that occurs, I think it is again reinforced by coming back into the physical space and the things that we're building and working with and the way the students are interacting. It's been really exciting to have all that happening again. Alan talked about his favorite aspect of his work. The students, the pleasure of working with the students and seeing their excitement and you know, like the unboxing day when we got those two new headsets in, you know, everyone's all around and opening things up and what is it capable of doing? And that is so important to me is contributing to that student experience and seeing them succeed. One of the activities that often occurs is classes will arrange and bring their class 
to the sim and they'll spend a few hours all experiencing VR to draw or paint or sculpt in VR. And, you know, some have used VR before, but a lot haven't. And it's absolutely true. We actually learned after the first few sessions, we had to remember to tell everyone to take a break, go into VR and start drawing. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, they're still doing it and you can't get them out of it. With the Center for Immersive Media, as we record this interview in January 2023, what's coming up for you this next semester and the next year or so? We're working on a number of fronts, and I think that's driven by the ongoing desire to really explore and invite faculty and staff throughout our institution to you know, engage with the center. And the thinking there is its capacity in an interdisciplinary way or multidisciplinary that this form or media format that we're working in has applications across all those fields. And coming up in February, faculty from the our music department, we have an area within music called Music Business Entrepreneurship and Technology, or otherwise MBET. And faculty from there who are particularly interested in immersive or spatial audio composition. We have a 16 channel, you know, it's 16 speakers in a spherical pattern around the listeners that can recreate that kind of immersive audio experiences. We have that system at the SIM. They've been working with it and they have a, there's going to be a nice public performance coming up in February where guests can come for a performance of curated works using the spatial audio system. We're doing workshops for faculty, again, with that goal of continuing to grow the engagement and, you know, hoping to impress on other areas to, you know, really explore and think about what benefits it may have for them. And that's been the interesting aspect to, you know, to have dance coming in and theater and design and photography and filmmaking. And they all have histories within their own disciplines and looking at what the capacity for virtual reality and augmented reality and how it might apply within their own discipline. And that's a big push of, you know, what we're doing, continuing to do, having events, pop-up events, open invite workshops, at the moment, we don't have, you know, any, we described the Jefferson collaboration project for the emergency department study. We don't currently have, you know, anything that we're immediately working on with that, but we have in the works, we're collaborating with Professor Michael Addy, who's also director of the film program here at UArts, and he's a documentary filmmaker. And we've been applying for grants and ramping up, looking at doing some VR documentary cinema work to develop work that could contribute in the area of violence prevention in youth, particularly in the Philadelphia area and beyond. Looking again, you know, at the 
capacity for VR for promoting empathy and understanding and putting people in potentially challenging or difficult situations and the decision-making that often has to be done, whether it's dealing with peer pressure and other attributes. And, and that's been real exciting to think about the contributions that we can make to the community and for change and being able to make those things happen. What if someone listening wants to know more about your programs? Are these strictly in-person or will they also be online? We do have a web presence on the University Arts website. It's uarts.edu slash sim. And we, you know, one of the things I wanted to have on there that we have just kind of launched a revision to the site that includes process blogs of our projects. So we have documentation there of completed projects and research that we work on, but we also have a link there to blogs because I'm always excited to get the the awareness out there of the student experience. And so these blogs are, are maintained by the students that are working on the projects with us so that they can keep track of, you know, and we can see the things they're learning and contemplating and and developing with the computer graphics and interaction and dealing with this kind of subject matter that we have. uarts.edu forward slash sim, C-I-M. Yeah, C-I-M. Would you tell me about another project you've been involved in before we wrap up? I understand you've been working with Access Now, making museum displays accessible to folks with disabilities, specifically blindness. That's right. Access Now, it's a nonprofit based in Miami, and they are advocacy for the blind and the vision impaired in a number of ways. They do some really important work, you know, and benefits from really neat events, jazz festivals, dining in the dark events, and and they're connected also with the people from Philly Touch Tours, which has been based here in Philly, of course, and Philly Touch Tours has a history of doing really interesting events for the blind and vision impaired to have special trips at the museums in the area where they can experience work through touch, whether it's, you know, old artifacts that otherwise have velvet ropes in front that we can't normally touch, but that they arrange for these so they can have that experience. And and that's been quite successful, but of course it's, you know, what I would call a conventional approach and with established museum exhibition formats. And those two groups working together reached out to me at the SIM to see what the possible opportunities were. And I immediately saw, you know, the importance and the potential for contribution in that area. And especially in terms of, you know, seeing what the the power of the medium in immersive media can be. And we have been working together over the last, I'd say, two semesters over the past year, formulating, you know, the directions that we can go with the idea of developing the technology at the SIM. We've, I mentioned the spatial audio system, making immersive audio-only experiences that can convey narrative or convey place and 
We're working with haptic systems, haptic gloves, haptic vests that you wear, and you feel, you know, a force feedback, sort of a variable level of vibration, not unlike how our mobile phones vibrate, but can do that in very accurate ways, sort of all across the body so that you can sense things that are in front of you or behind you. And we're looking at all of these different aspects in terms of sound, touch, smell that can create you know, meaningful experiences without depending on you know, sight alone. As I've always been working in that area of cinema, you know, it's often said that you know, for a movie, especially audio designers, will say a movie is 50% sound in terms of how we experience it and understand. So yeah, that's been a really, it's an ongoing project. We had a great example within that of how we, you know, also engage with our students and that they're able to share in that experience and see those kinds of applications that can be done with the kind of work that they're learning to do. That we had a combined course between the SIM and museum studies and the graduate museum exhibition planning and design program. And we had, you know, the people from Access Now and Philly Touch Tours come in and give talks and as well as members of the community who are vision impaired coming in, giving feedback. And, and the students were exploring concepts for creating like museum installations or museum exhibits that could be experienced by people with you know any number of different limitations by adding in those other sensory experiences to how you understand you know what it is that you're learning about wow i'd like to ask you for a mini lesson you're going to teach a course in that particular discipline where we've got the students we're going to have them in the museum and they're going to make an installation that's accessible to everybody and it's going to be engaging within the first few seconds they encounter it what's the first thing you teach those students there's the students might come in thinking that they're really going to learn about technology how do i start using the software to build something that might you know track you know, might know when someone's moved into that space and or respond to the screen display. And that's good. And we want to get into that. But I think when we start looking at applications like that, we need to look at what's been learned in those particular disciplines. And for instance, part of my response here is that in that case, it, it's a lot about exhibition design. You said like how to engage them quickly right off the bat. And, you know, some of the projects I've worked on within museums, there's a big concern about what they, the phrase they use is hang time, that they, you know, to measure how long patrons will spend, you know, looking at a work and absorbing information. And so a lot of that of like, you know, jump around a little bit, but what I think, what I often have students do when you're starting to develop concepts for an installation with that kind of complexity and those kinds of needs is telling the story is first talking about the narrative of what the experience of the user is. So really defining, you know, that, and it's something that comes out of the design process of, you know, developing personas for what 
the audience most likely may be like or personas that might help set up that range of what you're wanting to accommodate for and then narratives of what the experience is like from the moment they enter that space and what happens and it's important and it might sound simple but we can talk about those same things in terms of game design or other digital interactive experiences that are essentially non-linear that you're also wanting to give people choice and you know they might make one of a number of possible choices at the start and so as you're creating that narrative you're also accommodating for what are those different choices that people might be making if indeed you know you're wanting to provide sort of a non-linear experience which can effectively engage people because that sense of control can promote that. So I don't know if I answered the question quite directly, but those would be the kinds of things that would inform me to then formulate how I would do that first lesson plan for that particular project of a sort of overview of what those things you are wanting to achieve and then starting to piece together the ingredients and saying, okay, well, then these particular software tools or these hardware gadgets might be, you know, the right fit for that. Of identifying those technology solutions after you've identified what those needs and range of possibilities are. What new software tools or hardware gadgets are really inspiring you as a creator? What's really fun for you right now? I've a lot of excitement for a long time. We've always, you know, to achieve an immersive space, we're often using projectors, right? As you might imagine, whether it's like rear screen projectors and always, you know, trying to create the environment conducive to that. Right now, I'm so excited and for a while now, but what's really grown is LED wall displays and these modular systems that are small you know, like one foot square panels that can be linked together to make giant wall displays. And they're so bright that you can put them in a fully lit room. And, you know, and you see some of these things at airports or large public areas, you know, with unusual kind of sculptural video displays that swoop over the space so that it takes the screen, you know, the concept of the screen that we're used to, you know, a television, it's a rectangular screen, it takes the concept of those kinds of displays and just, you know, breaks the frame away. Sort of like VR, when you put on a VR headset, the conventional frame of a movie or a television is gone. And a filmmaker immediately, you know, starts to ask the question, well, you know, which way is the audience looking? And with this advent and really growing accessibility and affordability, of these LED systems. I think we'll be seeing more of that. And they're being used more in what's called virtual production. So, you know, the age of green screen effects has gone away and, and now using these large LED walls that are super bright and contribute the lighting onto the actors and, and shooting with the digital camera. And so it just has so much flexibility in so many applications that we're, you know, we're really looking at it new way of working with displays that is no longer projectors, no longer televisions, and no longer in the conventional sense, and no longer VR headsets. The other thing is, you know, just the excitement with the fast-paced advancement with the technologies in head mount displays. 
I think a lot of us are familiar with, you know, the Oculus, the Facebook Oculus Quest head mount display. You know, there's there's at least eight or 10 other designs out there, manufacturers who are doing things, some of which are much more expensive and higher resolution, but that we're seeing all these developments moving quickly and becoming more and more available. And I would mention the current excitement that we just acquired two of those latest Quest Pro headsets, a little bit more expensive than the previous ones, but the optics and the visuals are much improved. But what it does that's so amazing to me, one is that it's incorporated eye tracking into the headset. And we've heard about, you know, eye tracking has been around for a long time and and used in interesting studies. It's, you know, used in advertising, you know, where is a person looking when a, a video is playing, you know, where's their attention going? It's also used for computing problem solving so that you can commit most of the rendering power to where they are looking. But what's really interesting for me and with that new headset that it not only does eye tracking, but it has tracking, even though the head mount display fits only over the eyes, it has sensors that can actually track the whole face, the mouth, your expressions, smiling, frowning, talking, eyebrows going up and down. And what we're doing right now is going through the process of mapping that onto avatar characters. And I think the initial you know, concept is that that would then allow you in a social media context when multiple people are joined together in a virtual environment through VR, when they're talking and looking at each other, they can see these representations of the avatars. You can see each other's expression and they bring a lot more personality into it. But what we're also looking at it for is for virtual theater, like a form of virtual immersive theater, because we have an optical motion capture system that can capture very detailed of the entire body, walking around, moving around. It's an optical mocap system that's used, you know, not unlike what's used in the movie industry for doing special effects or game production. And what I'm interested in is the live aspect to it for theater kind of experiences where the performers can be wearing, you know, the motion capture, wearing the VR headset that's tracking their full face animation. And then the audience would also be in the VR space wearing VR and they would be, you know, watching the actors move around and talking, but they would be the virtual characters so that then the territory opens wide up in terms of what you can create for the environment and how the characters look. And But you also have all that possibility for improvisation and impromptu things happening and interacting live with the performers. And I think that's representative of, you know, on a number of different fronts where at the SIM, we're always looking at, you know, where those potentials are for how it can apply to a particular discipline and then approach people in that discipline, you know, and saying, what do you think? Does this make sense? Do you want to start to develop some work with this? So we're trying to make these tools available and like easily accessible, like ease the learning curve by creating templates and combinations of the hardware and software so that it doesn't feel so daunting to someone who would like to explore 
you know, what the possibilities are, but say, well, I could never, you know, start working with that. And I think that's a primary function of the sim to make that accessible so that artists and designers in our faculty can come in and just, you know, dive right in and start working with their ideas. It's an exciting time to get to be a creator. Signature question for my podcast, which I like to conclude is, if people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you and your work? Don't be afraid to take risks. That's pretty straightforward, I think, or simple, but it reminds me of a phrase I overheard someone saying, we can do anything, all it takes is money. I don't agree with that at all. I mean, but in this field, you could easily fall into that, you know, like we, you know, we have to buy the very expensive equipment, but I've always been a proponent of repurposing, recombination, how you can, you know, leverage things and and cheat and come up with ways to make things happen. So, you know, I would say anything is possible. It just takes the dedication, the commitment and the time, you know, and the creative problem solving, you know, and as we often say, thinking outside of the box. As artists, I think in this area, working with emerging technology and immersive media, that it often takes a team. And you may start out with ideas that you've developed but as you start, you know, working with that team that you, you know, keeping oneself open to those variables that can continue to take shape in the work. And I think that's one of the things exciting for me in this area is its applicability in so many disciplines and that opportunity to learn so much about other disciplines. Alan, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You and I have been listening to Alan Price, director of the Center for Immersive Media at University of the Arts in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Get a look at all the exciting things the Center for Immersive Media is creating in the areas of virtual and mixed reality by checking out uarts.edu forward slash sim, C-I-M as in Center for Immersive Media. That's uarts.edu forward slash sim. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.